0: Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. I have a very special guest today who has an incredible story, and she'll teach us all some very important lessons about overcoming PTSD and supercharging resilience. She was the executive director and CEO of Massachusetts Port Authority on September 11th, 2001, and one of the only women to serve as chief of staff to two consecutive Massachusetts governors. Here to discuss the untold story about her journey through 9-11 and beyond, please welcome the author of On My Watch, Virginia Buckingham. Ginny, it is so good to see you here today, and I really appreciate you being with me. I think you have so much to teach our listeners and just can't wait to talk to you about your amazing book. Uh, Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about your leadership and this theme of resilience. And, A lot of people define resilience in different ways, but I think many times when psychologists talk about resilience, we're talking about the process of adapting and changing and growing in the face of serious adversity and trauma. And when somebody has resilience, it doesn't mean that they're not going to go through difficulties, but it's kind of about how you bounce back from those difficulties and what you make of it in terms of your life experience. And You have such an incredible story. You have an incredible career. And I thought that maybe we can start from the beginning because we're going to get to the fact that you were the person in charge of Massport during 9-11, but let's talk about that journey. So tell me a little bit about what that was like.
1: So I went to Boston College and you know wasn't a political person, but needed an internship to pay for um, my bills and ended up in the State House working in the Governor's office at the age of 19. And I was bit by the political bug right away. I loved it, and that really set me on my career path.
0: Yes. And it's so interesting because college is all about those explorations. And sometimes you end up somewhere where maybe you didn't necessarily plan for, but it sounds like you really got into that position and you actually rose very quickly through the ranks. And in your book, you talked about just having this knowledge base and in some ways, a a knack for understanding how politics work and what's required. So what were some of the important lessons that you had learned early on about how to work with politicians and how to speak to the public and be able to work well in the public eye.
1: So I found I was able to take a very complex issue or situation and distill it pretty quickly into an understandable um, phrase or words or picture and, and share that. And so my my ability to help governors do that with their policies was really how I grew in my career. And I you know didn't, know that I had a strategic instinct, but I found that I did. And so I was able to, you know, become first a press secretary. Then I ran a major Senate campaign for my governor in the the mid-90s, Governor Weld, and then ultimately became um, his chief of staff. When he resigned to pursue an ambassadorship, I stayed on for a second governor. um, And that's what led me ultimately to Logan Airport.
0: And a lot of these accomplishments that you're talking about, you were achieving in your 20s, which is just phenomenal that you were able to do this and that you were able to gain the trust of these very highly positioned leaders of our country. And so tell me how the job opportunity for Massport came to you.
1: So I was actually on maternity leave with my first child, uh, my son, and the head of the agency at the time got embroiled in a bit of a scandal and got fired. Um, And the call came in almost right away from the governor's chief personnel person saying, you know, the governor wants you to take this on. He knows you can do it. He knows you can reform the agency. And I was like, no way. (laughs) I I (laughs) love my job as chief of staff. I just had a baby. I don't want to start a a new job. And I said no. Two more times, um, the governor ultimately called me himself and asked me to do it. And I'm loyal. I'm a loyal person. I was loyal to him. I knew I could do the job. Um, so I, I said I would take it on.
0: So basically you were offered a job that you weren't necessarily looking for, but once you realized that that was the offer, and like you said, you're a loyal person and you knew that you could do it, you ended up going straight into it and putting your whole heart and soul into it. When you started the job, did you know all of the, all of the things that you needed to know? to be able to do that job because it's really about security and aviation industry. Did you have that experience yet or did you have to learn as you went?
1: So the, the role was really you know not landing planes at Logan. The role was interacting with the politicians and the communities around Logan Airport and driving the agenda of the agency, which was an economic agenda. We were trying to build a new runway, which is a very controversial thing, no matter what airport you're talking about. But when you're in an airport like Logan in the middle of the city of Boston, it was incredibly controversial. So my role was really to communicate and, and position um, the fight for that runway among other priorities. And then, honestly, you know, Congress was looking at passing a passenger bill of rights at the time because people were so mad at how airlines were treating them and charging them for baggage and such. And, and so the idea that planes would be used as a weapon themselves to take down buildings was in, in no one's mind. It certainly wasn't in my mind.
0: Right. And as you're speaking now, it makes a lot of sense that you actually did already have the entire knowledge base needed to start the job. Although I think sometimes when people think about being the CEO of Massport, perhaps they have a different picture that somehow you have to know a lot of details about aviation or a lot of details about all of the ins and outs of security. And you were really the front person. You were the communication hub. You were the person who would direct the program. And in fact, as you were mentioning this project about building a new runway, way on September 11th, that was where you were going. You were going to go and discuss this project with some important people in DC. So can you take us back to that day? And as you were, it sounds like you were traveling to the airport to fly out yourself that day. And finding out about what was going on during 9-11 and the Twin Towers.
1: Isn't that such a part of the horrifying narrative, right? How normal the day started and how everything changed in an instant. You know, I got my my son off to daycare with my husband. I got in the car and was reading my briefing because I was meeting with the head of the Federal Aviation Administration later that day and a member of the Bush Administration to press for the runway. Um, and I was listening to the radio, as I always did, um, on my way to work, um, and grabbed a cup of coffee at a little coffee stand and heard um, the report about the first plane. And like everyone um, at the time, thought it was just a small plane that had veered off course and um, you know felt very sad about it. But um, my office actually called and said, did you hear what happened? Do you still want to go? I was like, yeah, of, of course, of course I'm going to go. Um, And I was listening live to the radio report when the second plane flew in and I knew instantly that it was no accident.
0: Right. And you said this in that part of your book where you had this realization when you heard that the second plane hit Twin Towers. Oh my gosh, this is terrorism. So that was your instant recollection. And just like you, I think everybody in the United States remembers where they were that day when they found out. Everybody has such a significant and clear memory of that day. And this is what happens with memories of trauma that oftentimes they are very punctuated and you can recollect them like it was yesterday. And I remember where I was, I was working in a special education program for kids with severe emotional disturbance. And I remember we were in the middle of class and we all turned on the TV and really the rest of the day was just a lot of crying and hugging and calling parents and not knowing what to do ourselves as we're trying to make sense of it, but also trying to be there for the children that we were caring for. And so you at the time, as all of this was unfolding, you were not even at the airport yet. You were on your way there. And then you started getting a flood of calls of people trying to trying to figure out exactly what happened. When did you find out that two of the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center originated from Logan International Airport.
1: Well, you know, first of all, all I wanted to do was turn around and go to the daycare and pick my son up and protect him. Whatever this was, that was all I wanted to do, but I couldn't do that. I had a job to do. I got a call um, shortly after the second plane went into the tower that two planes were off the radar at from Logan. And those words, those six words, two planes are off the radar, have haunted me for nearly 20 years now. And it was not certain that they came from Logan. No one knew for sure for many hours, um, but somewhere deep in my heart, I knew. And we drove as fast as we could to get to my office.
0: Right. And in the beginning, as you mentioned, there was a lot of frenetic energy. You were just trying to do your job When did the blame start happening? And I really want to get into this today because blame, as you mentioned in your book, in some ways is the easy way out, yet it is such a essential phenomenon of the human condition. When people feel like they're out of control, they got to find control somehow. And that's the function of scapegoats. Because then they feel like there's a way to control the narrative and something horrific that happened. And you see this on the microcosms at the family level, but you, of course, also see it on the national and international level. So when did the blame begin? Because it felt like for a while you were obviously just doing your job and everything seemed normal. You were, I mean, normal as far as you doing your job, not normal what happened. And all of a sudden people really start to turn their attention to you and wanting you to take responsibility for what happened.
1: It happened almost right away, which really took me by surprise because while I was very experienced in politics and I very well knew how the politics of blame could work, I just expected people would see this for what it was, which was a worldwide attack on America and because planes had taken off from three other airports at almost the same time and were also hijacked. It never occurred to me that the blame would come my way, but it did very quickly. By September 13th, there was a story in the Boston Globe um, with anonymous sources basically saying that um, my job was at risk.
0: Wow. So within 48 hours, all of this was happening kind of unbeknownst to you because nobody had talked to you about your job being at risk at this point. But certainly that is where the court of public opinion was going. And I thought it was phenomenal and very extraordinary that when you had a chance to tell your side of the story to Katie Couric, you had an opportunity to also choose your own scapegoats, but but you didn't. And this is the pretty, pretty little known fact, I think, about uh, aviation security, that actually, the airlines are the ones who are really responsible for the policies of security checkpoints. And it wasn't necessarily just in your purview to change those things. And so you could have blamed the airlines, you could have blamed other people, you could have pointed out that there were other airports in which these terrorists were flying planes out of. And yet, you didn't do any of that. So what was the recognition at that time to not point the finger yourself? Because I'm sure there was maybe a small temptation, at least for most of us. I think we could understand that feeling of wanting to spread the blame or or wanting to talk about it more. Why didn't you go
1: there? I never blamed anyone but the terrorists themselves. It never even occurred to me to blame anyone else. I understood that no one was prepared for what happened. It was a shock to everyone. And I knew very well that even the airlines, their whole security system was set up to stop bombs. Not not to stop hijackings um, and the planes being used as weapons. So it never occurred to me. What did occur to me is, okay, if I was going to be in the spotlight, if I was going to be, you know, held up for, for blame, I could use it for good. I could use it to try to press for change. And that's what I did. Any chance I got, including in that Katie Cork interview to press for federalization of security, which ultimately happened. um, And, you know, at least I can look back and say we accomplished something because we were in the spotlight.
0: Absolutely. And even during that time, when Katie Couric asked you some very directed questions, you very quickly took responsibility. So even though you knew what the court of public opinion was saying, you took responsibility and said, if they do an investigation and if they find that there's something that I did, I'm happy to take full responsibility and suffer the consequences, basically. How much of that do you think actually led people to blame you more because you took that responsibility at that point?
1: You know, looking back, I thought a thousand times, how could I have handled things differently? And I think if I had said at the time, it's ridiculous to blame me, the blame would have been worse. <laughs> so <Yes>. I, just, <laughs> I, I tried to stay focused on doing my job and I kind of at first thought it would all blow over, and that there would be, you know, some kind of context and understanding perspective of how how actually um, it was ridiculous to blame one person. That didn't happen ultimately. And And I have to say that those those voices of doubt blaming me got inside my heart and they got inside my head, and I carried them for many, many years and wondered if maybe they were true. And I stopped listening to what I knew from the beginning, which it wasn't true at all. And and it really, it was a hard burden to carry. And I will say that
0: victims of trauma, and I know that you've said this many times in your book, certainly the trauma you went through, you keep saying, of course, it's not the same thing as the traumas of the family members of people who perished that day. But you did go through trauma, Ginny, and this is part of the phenomenon of trauma that the victims end up blaming themselves, no matter what the source of the trauma is, whether it's physical, sexual, trauma of war, trauma of childhood. For some reason, the human mind also wants to explain why something happened the way that it did. And even though you talked about knowing in your heart that there was a depth in your heart that you knew you weren't responsible, You second guess yourself all the time and you couldn't hold on to that fundamental truth that it wasn't your fault. In fact, I felt my heartbreak when I read this part of the book where you were actually pregnant with your second child at the time and you had said that there was a point where you almost felt like if the stress caused you to lose the baby, that maybe you deserved it.
1: That was a horrible, horrible moment, horrible thing to think. Um, But I was having an amniocentesis, which just because of my age. And um, that is exactly what I thought. I couldn't tell my husband that because it was such a horrible thing to think. Um, But yeah, that's kind of self-punishment stayed with me for a long, long time.
0: And a lot of people who go through trauma do punish themselves and people were punishing you. They really wanted to have something to explain this phenomenon that they could understand. And I think the problem is people don't understand terrorists. Most people don't because most of us, thank goodness, don't have that type of mentality or mindset. And so it's easier to blame a person or someone that they felt like they could at least grapple with the concept rather than blame the terrorists, which is of course the source of all of this. And very quickly, as you mentioned, people started to blame you. All different sources, the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, they had really uh, inciting headlines like Logan Brash should atone, you know, as if there was a sin that you had to atone for. At the time, and certainly now, if this was happening in the world of social media, it would travel even faster. But you were living in the community where all of these local Presses were saying these things, but of course, on a national level too. How did you deal with that? Did you just try not to read the news? Did you try to stay away from it? What was going on in your head?
1: You know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I think the PTSD probably started right around then. And that dissociative skill that comes along with PTSD of being able to kind of block the emotion of things so that you can function. I think helped me a lot to just stay focused and do my job. And while I read the headlines, I don't think i let them penetrate. Somehow they did deep in my heart and soul. But at the time, I didn't let them. Um, And I think that probably made the PTSD worse over time
0: and that skill of compartmentalization which i think all great leaders have because you can't let your emotions get in the way sometimes or if you're having personal troubles you still have a job to do and so a lot of great leaders like yourself they they have honed this skill of compartmentalization but then it kind of turned on its head and became a symptom of ptsd which is what you said dissociation. And it's a common symptom. About 15% of people who are diagnosed with PTSD does have this subset of symptoms called dissociation. Um, but it, it had sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it helped you to do your job. On the other hand, it, as you mentioned, makes the PTSD worse because you haven't confronted the source of the trauma and process it. So you in the days after you continue to do your job. You hunker down. Like you said, you block things out. You push away the intrusive images. And in your book over and over again, you talked about the image of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center. And you didn't see it at the time because it sounds like you were in the car. But why that that image and why that piece specifically did it come back to haunt you over and over again?
1: So it is the image I still see today, um, just as clearly and just as painfully. And I'm sure many people do. I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Um, But when I walked into my office, they were replaying it again and again, obviously, on the news. And I saw it and took it in. And I saw it from then on and still do. And you knew
0: people that were on that plane specifically. Well, and I didn't
1: know any of them personally, which was um, something that later I wanted to know them. I I, I yeah. read everything I could about every one of them because I wanted to understand and probably punish myself a little bit more for for their yeah. for their deaths. Um, right. But you know, one of um, the families that I later got to know, I think about. They saw that plane and they knew their loved one died in that moment, and how horrible. what a horrible, horrible thing to carry.
0: Yes. And one of the individuals who had died on the plane
1: worked at Massport.
0: She worked at one
1: of the airlines and her mom worked at Massport.
0: Yes. And you actually ended up having a friendship with her mom. But Marianne was, as you described in her book, she was this very vibrant person, loved working at the airport. And she was on her way that day to meet up with some friends for a little vacation in Vegas. And Unfortunately, of course, she was on that plane, that fateful plane, the second plane that hit the World Trade Center. So what caused you to reach out to Anne, her mother, and what were you hoping for when you got to talk to her?
1: Exoneration. That's what I really wanted and felt that maybe I could find it in, in her. I went to Mary Ann's uh, memorial service and had never met her mom, Ann, um, who's my hero, um, who reached out to me and held both my hands at that memorial service. And she said, don't let them destroy our airport. And it was so surprising to me that that's where her heart and head were, that I guess I felt safe several months later reaching out to her. Um, and I asked her point blank at that meeting, um, do you blame me? And she said, you're no more to blame than Marianne is, without even a moments of, moment of hesitation. And she said, what are you gonna do now? I said, I'm gonna try to write my story and live my life. And she said, do it, do it in Marianne's name. And those words have held me up for many, many, many years. I'm so grateful to her. What an extraordinary experience
0: to look at the family member of one of the deceased in the eyes and to know that not only did she not blame you, she didn't think there was anything to forgive, that clearly you weren't at fault. And in fact, you were exonerated later in many ways because the 9-11 commission that formally investigated everything found that airport personnel were blameless. They used the word blameless because there was no aviation security protocol that was violated. And this speaks to that idea in your mind that you knew from the beginning that you knew it wasn't your fault. And yet your, your feelings, your heart, there was something that still questioned it. And I think it was really interesting as you're talking about your story with getting to know Anne and having her voice in your head, helping to hold you up, And you started to write your story. You had a front cover essay that was published in September, 2002, and it got a lot of attention. It was a lovely, beautiful piece. I read that and I thought it was amazing, but very quickly people, again, no matter what you say, no matter how much responsibility you take, no matter how much you let people into your inner life and your struggles with all of this, there was just so many questions So many more people coming forward and continuing to blame you and asking you when you were going to apologize. People were harassing you on the phone. What was your response to that after writing something that I felt like was such an outpouring of your soul and then still having people react in this way?
1: It was really shattering. I think the lowest moment certainly was when I was personally sued for wrongful death by a family, and I don't blame them for doing that. They were trying to find their own self for their own hearts. I understand that, but it shattered me because I thought a, a mother of two children a, actually thinks I could have stopped her husband from being murdered, and, and I couldn't reconcile it. And actually, each time those calls would come in or I'd get those mean letters, they were kind of the image I used was being pushed back under the water, like trying to swim to the surface. This, but being pushed back down again and again. And um, it went on for years because litigation against me was dropped early, but it continued against the airport for 10 years. And so those headlines and those stories and those comments continued.
0: That's right. You had depositions, you had to keep talking about it. And as you mentioned, every time you had to make contact with this, whether it's because of preparing for the deposition or, reading another letter that came from somebody who wanted you to take the blame or receiving a phone call. In many ways, it was like being re-traumatized all over again. And again, questioning yourself once more, whether or not maybe you were responsible in some way, even though you knew that you weren't, there was a part of you that knew that. And and yet it kept following you. So I thought that it was really interesting that then you uh, got a job at Boston Herald, and. Of course they were part of the headlines that tried to destroy you in the beginning and even when you got that job it was so conflictual that you you discovered very early on that your soon to be coworkers had written some kind of petition to express their gross dissatisfaction with the hiring decision so and you hadn't actually officially started at that time right you had were right. just getting ready to start so how did you hold your head up high to walk into the Boston Herald after knowing that? And of course, it leaked to the press so other people knew too.
1: So it, the job itself was a dream come true because I'd wanted to be a professional writer since I was a little kid. So the idea that I could be paid to write was just like, wow. And and mentor of mine called it a complete comeback. And I was like, yes, I'm back. This is great. Yeah. I can go in and I'm going to write about politics and policy and, and be right back in the world that I used to lead in. Um, so, you know, the, the petition hurt my feelings, I guess I would say, but I yes. I didn't take it that. To heart. I thought, you know, they don't know me. So I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to work hard and they'll get to know me. And that's what happened, actually. I worked there for four years and um, became close friends with many of my colleagues at the Herald. And I loved that job. I relished that job.
0: That's wonderful. And it is a really hard thing to actually change people's first impressions. There's research that says that once you've made a first impression about somebody, it takes about 13 different events or experiences that would go against that first impression for them to say, oh, maybe I was wrong about this person. So you must have dedicated yourself to really just showing them who you actually were. And it probably took a little time, but I'm so glad that they were able to see you for who you were because it's so easy, isn't it, for us to put a judgment on somebody, just a categorical description of a person and what they might be like when you don't know them. And I feel like that was where the scrutiny was coming from. Most of the people obviously only knew you from your public press releases or your public appearances they, they didn't know you as a whole person and it's just so much easier just to say oh well there's that woman who we have to blame for everything that happened
1: yeah i think showing compassion that's something i've learned through this showing compassion for our political leaders as human beings when we're watching them you know we see them on tv we don't know them in person and i think it's easy to make them two dimensional and you know, it's certainly obviously not true. So I've I've tried to um, keep that perspective, you know. But what was interesting is that idea that the Boston Herald job would be a complete comeback didn't actually bear fruit because what didn't come back was my heart and soul and my sense of self. You know, while I loved the job and I was able to write for a living. I was still broken inside, and, I, and as you said, the 9-11 Commission came out and said it wasn't Logan Airport, and you would think all of those things would say, okay, get on with it, move on, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. behind you now, and that just wasn't my experience.
0: And we have been focusing a lot, of course, on your critics, but you did have supporters along the way, not just Anne, but even strangers who wrote letters and called and said, I love your story. Um, Please continue. We love your work. I mean, there were people who definitely were on your side. And of course, your family was on your side. But as you mentioned, this phenomenon of PTSD and for people who haven't been through it, or maybe for people who have or known people who have been through it. I felt like it was a really profound description of what it was like for you. And of course, PTSD is different for everyone. But for you in your book, you mentioned that PTSD was having the essential humanness removed from your body. And as you mentioned, this feeling of losing yourself. Um, So you carried on, you had jobs, you still continued in your career, but just the essence of who you were it was hard to make contact with that on a consistent basis. And as a psychologist, the people I've worked with who have PTSD, they often talk about that. It's sort of this idea that you can't make full and complete consistent contact with your sense of self for any prolonged period of time. And I was wondering before all of this happened, had you had any experiences with mental illness of any sort, depression, anxiety, or anything like that?
1: Um, no, no, not really. I guess other than the anxiety of growing up in a family of eight children and little money and, and that type of thing, that kind yeah. of anxiety. Um, but no, no, nothing to prepare me for for what this would be like.
0: Right. So you didn't have any family members who had a mental illness or PTSD that you could yeah. even recollect. So this was this all took you by surprise. And as you were grappling with that sense of self, how did you manage your day-to-day and still being able to feel like a coherent, full person as you were going through all of the activities that you had to do? Because I think sometimes people with PTSD struggle with that.
1: So thank God for my kids. That's what I would say. So my kids were babies, and I had to raise them, and I felt this incredible obligation to not put this on them in any way, shape, or form. Maybe to my own detriment, in that I never fully let myself feel it. Therefore, um, but I was determined to raise happy, healthy, wonderful children, and they you know, they were busy, you know, and kept me busy. And I you know went back to work, so I was balancing all of that, and I really think that got me through. It got me through because I I needed them to anchor me and I needed to be a great mom.
0: And it's so important because people who go through PTSD for as long as you were, and I know that you still struggle sometimes with the remnant symptoms of it. um, Sometimes it's really hard to feel like there's meaningfulness in your life. And because of the blame, similar to what we had just talked about earlier about you feeling like Maybe I don't even deserve to have my second child survive. There was parts of your narrative where you questioned whether or not you had the will to go on. And you talked about this in the book that if you truly were to blame, then I couldn't bear to live. And there were all of these moments. So did you ever suffer from suicidal ideation more significantly than just like a passing thought? Was there ever a time when you really thought about it? You know, maybe perhaps even dreamed how you would do it. Um, did it ever get to that point?
1: It did. Um, there was one particular night where it was shortly after I had been sued um, personally that I drove to the beach and sat there and contemplated and wanted to drive my car into the water and drown myself. And I fought the instinct by asking myself, did my children deserve to lose me or would they would they be better off without me? That was kind of the oh. in my own mind because I felt so devastated. And it took every ounce of will for me to pull out of that parking lot and go home instead of driving into the water. And I went right to my child's bedside and I laid down next to him and I promised him I would never leave him on purpose. And that promise is what I kept in my mind because there were many other days where I thought about it, uh, many hard days, but that promise that I would not leave my children is what stopped me.
0: Did it scare you the first time that you had such a significant thought against somebody who loved their life before and never had any experience with mental illness, all of a sudden contemplating taking your own life? That is such a hard turn Did this take you by surprise? Did it shock you?
1: Well, yes and no, because part of it felt like a a relief. (laughs) Part of it felt like it would end the pain. And my husband and I would argue about it because he's so full of life and love and joy. And he didn't really believe me. He's like, Why would you want to do that? Why would you miss your grandchildren? Why would you miss your children's weddings? And I tried to explain to him that's not the choice I'm facing. The choice is a life of unbearable pain or suicide. Those are, that's the choice. As I felt at that time, I don't anymore. And you know, it, it's, it's a horrible thing to face. Um, and I'm so grateful that I found the will not to.
0: You talked about, as you mentioned, your children being your anchor, that they were your anchor to hold you. And you had told your son, Jack, I wouldn't choose to leave no matter how desperate you were to escape your own torment. And even if the future only held pain, that you made a promise to your children that you would not choose to die. But do you find that there were times where perhaps you were a bit more reckless with yourself? Sometimes people do this. It's not intentional, maybe, but almost like when they lose that sense of self, it's almost like, ah, you know. So, so what if I'm mean to myself, if I hurt myself in some way, shape, or form, maybe I don't deserve to be here anyway. Were there moments like that that happened to you?
1: One that comes to mind is driving without a seatbelt, mm. um, which I would do sometimes for wow. sure.
0: Wow. And I'm sure you didn't do that beforehand. No, <laughs> not a that was definitely a new behavior. And, and, and you know, speaking of your husband, I know he had been such a he's your best friend, he's so supportive through all of this, but I think it, it uh, It's an important point to make that when when somebody hasn't suffered from suicidal ideation themselves, it's almost a hard thing for them to grapple with. Um, You can't imagine how somebody could get to that point of desperation and hopelessness that they think that that would actually be a choice. And I'm sure he tried to do whatever he could to pull you back from those thoughts, but he doesn't understand when it takes hold how significant and pervasive it can be. How did your PTSD affect your relationship with David?
1: It, it took a toll. It took a toll because I didn't have the tools or the words to explain what what was going on, and he didn't have the experience um, to understand what was going on. And so we were both kind of lost um, at sea a, a little bit. Um, and you know, over time, I, I gained the words to be able to to tell him, and he's an extraordinarily kind compassionate human being and um he worked really hard to try to understand um and to, to and to be there for me you know he had the clarity that I didn't have from the beginning which is it's ridiculous to blame you it's not true so why are you getting yourself <laughs> why are you ruining your life over it right you know he right. had that clarity um that I didn't have um at, at the time and you know how could I have given kind of the what was coming at me? It, it took me a long time to sort through it all and hear that voice and say, Yep, yeah, that's true. I couldn't have done anything, not one thing to stop it.
0: Right. And as you mentioned, finally finding the words to describe how you were feeling and how you were dealing with everything. And of course, the dissociation was also still part of this. So sometimes you were just shutting it away and not choosing to talk about it. But you talked about finding the words, and you had a therapist, Andrea, who you worked through this with and that finding the words to deal with PTSD, that it was fundamental to healing the isolation of trauma. And even though you were around your loving family all the time, it it feels isolating, doesn't it? That you were really all alone dealing with the trauma, but until you were able to communicate fully, that trauma continued. Whereas communicating fully is sort of the opposite of being traumatized. And so when did you finally find yourself able to hold on to what was true, that it was not your fault. It never was. When did you find that that clicked in for you?
1: So probably towards the end of the litigation, you know, when that chapter closed and I felt at least there's not going to be some official finding that Logan was to blame. And therefore, in my perspective, I was to blame. I was able to start thinking about things, I think a little more clearly without that kind of dagger um, hanging over my head. But what I really it needed to do to get to the other side was to listen to Andrea Braidbeck, my therapist, who said, you know, you're gonna have to be your own hero in this. No one is gonna come in and save you. And, you know, even if the 9-11 commission says it wasn't you, even if the litigation is dropped, you're not gonna believe it and hold on to it until you yourself hear your own voice and hold on to what you know is true. And I, that took me so long because I searched for external exoneration throughout this process. I just wanted someone from the president um, or, or newspaper on down to say, it's not your fault, Jenny. Right. And and that wasn't ever gonna happen. And even if it didn't, it wouldn't have been enough. I needed to feel it and understand it in myself.
0: Right. And there were certain parts of the book that I thought this was so interesting where you met President Bush and you guys had seen each other again, actually, had you already met him before. And he said, you're a good person, Ginny." And yeah. for you, you were thinking at the time, no, that's not enough. I need you to hear. I need you to tell me that it wasn't my fault right. as right. opposed to I'm a good person. Um, and, and even on your way to your deposition, your attorney is basically saying, Hey, this is not your chance for exoneration. Okay. So people had to remind you to stop looking externally for that message and i think to to know that if you are suffering from ptsd or depression or anxiety or anything else any kind of self esteem issues self concept issues that really the answer is yourself you have to internally start to be able to believe those positive messages about you. Because otherwise, you're just constantly seeking external sources of validation, but they only last so long. You know, you get validation from one person, the next morning you wake up and you feel a completely different way. And so I know that when you work through PTSD and working with your therapist, you also read this book called Body Keep Score. And I love that book. And I recommend that to my patients a lot. Um, But I think sometimes people don't realize that trauma lives in your body for a long time, it lives in your body, even if you're not consciously thinking thoughts about it all the time. So, what was it like for you? How did it manifest in your body?
1: Well, you know, early on, it was in the sleeplessness and the bad dreams and and that type of thing. Um, I think in the long run, it's been a lack of care. You know, I, I think in terms of you know exercising regularly and making sure you're eating well and those types of things. That you know, there's just a disconnect between what's good for you and and what you want to put your mind to.
0: And again, that idea of maybe you don't deserve it or being more impulsive and reckless. I think that applies to these activities of self-care, you know, like just not eating as well because eh, who cares, right? It's just my body. It's just me. And yet wanting good things for other people. So wanting to feed your family well, but you yourself, maybe not taking good care of yourself. And I think when we talk about the PTSD that manifested, do you feel like 9-11 itself was where the source of trauma came from? Or was it everything that happened afterwards, all of the events, all of the narratives that people were trying to put on you?
1: I think it was a little both. both. Um, I think the trauma itself affected so many people, including me, just the fact of it. Um, and I think the isolation of being blamed and being held out as a scapegoat was incredibly shattering and traumatizing.
0: And you talked about this concept of othering, um, which is this heart of scapegoating, that othering, this profound sense of being different and made different from everyone else. And that's where I want to take the conversation now. It's just talking about this phenomenon of blame, which we opened our talk with how it's a fundamental human phenomenon. People need it because it's the easy way. It's the easy way out. It's the easy way to try to regain some sense of control when things can't be controlled. And as I'm thinking about what happened to you and 9-11 and how people wanted to process it and what's going on right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, I myself see many parallels, but I'm very interested in what you think about that.
1: I, I am floored by how similar it is. It's just horrifyingly similar. It's the shock of it, first of all, that no one expected this, understood it, it came out of nowhere, seemingly. Um, the lack of control, the lack of knowing what caused it and what you know can be done to stop it. Um the blame, which is everywhere you know, from a personal level, well, if you didn't go to New York, then you wouldn't put yourself at risk um of having it to you know blaming politicians for not managing their states or the country in the right in the right way. The blame phenomenon is is extraordinary right now, and just the look of fear and um emptiness in people's eyes um, when you go to the grocery store which we all try to do as little as we can but when we have to it's it's that same feeling of our our world as we know it is is gone and that's a real trauma to everyone I think
0: I think yes I agree with all of the things that you said and I also think about the concept of grief because when 911 happened, people were grieving all kinds of things. They were not only grieving the symbolism of what United States was all about. They were grieving personal individuals that they had lost. They were grieving what they had known about America because it was the first time that a war was on our soil. They were grieving a way of life that was going to be changing. And in many ways, that's what's happening now. We're grieving a former way of life because we don't know exactly when we're going to go back to a new normal. It won't be the same. Things are always going to be different now. I think that people would love to maybe apply that othering concept to New York or other countries, that this only happens in China and Italy, but it won't happen to us. Or, well, if we just quarantine New York, then we wouldn't have a problem. Again, people are always looking for a source to blame as a way of control. But I do understand that everyone deals with grief differently. And that blame is perhaps some of those earlier stages of grief, of the denial and the bargaining, like there's another explanation for this that would be easier for my mind to contemplate. But you also say that blame is a formidable obstacle to finding real solutions. Why do you say that?
1: So I think back to 9-11 and I would compare it to today, you know, firing me, forcing me to resign, didn't do anything to make Logan Airport any safer. And similarly, You know, if the CDC um, head is criticized or, uh, you know, the president himself is criticized because they didn't have the right pandemic response at at their ready, that doesn't change anything. It just makes everyone direct their anger. Instead, if we all look to solve the problems in front of us, and I'm not saying that means there's no accountability, accountability has to come. But right now we have a big issue that needs to be solved. So let's focus on that and put all our attention and time and emotion to, to that. And then when this is done, which it will be at some point, then let's, like the 9-11 Commission, take stock. Okay, what went wrong? What went right? What didn't we do? What should we do? And be better prepared next time. You know, i worked in government for a long time. Government's reactive. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was proactive, but that's just not the nature of the beast. It's a reactive body and in, in a bureaucracy that, responds to crises doesn't prepare for them generally speaking and that's what we're seeing now so let's fix it for next time and solve what we can now
0: how do you think government could change the way that they approach this is there a way for government to be more proactive or you think that that's inherent to the fabric of governments and how they work It's just hard to to do that
1: you know so i've been reading a lot about about the preparedness and my understanding is we were preparing for a bioterror attack That's what the national stockpiles were being put together for. Um, Just like before 9-11, we were preparing for a plane to be bombed, for instance, not for a a plane to be flown into a building. And so it's it's kind of like take your imagination as far to the ends of, of terribleness that you can to try to prepare and that's just not the nature of competing priorities in a, in a government body you know you're asking to spend money and direct resources away from other pressing priorities it's just not how it it works i wish that wasn't the case but i don't think you know being angry about it is going to change change how it is i think it's let, let's address what we know needs to happen now
0: what are your recommendations for how we can come together as a country? Because me personally, I actually feel because of the COVID nineteen pandemic so much closer to my neighbors, my uh, fellow Americans from the other side of the country, even feeling closer to other countries because we're all dealing with a same enemy, same problem. But when you look at the news coverage of COVID nineteen. There's still a lot of conflict between the more conservative presses versus the more liberal presses and who they're blaming, how much they believe that we should follow directives, et cetera. How do you think we can start to move towards a solution together?
1: Assume best intentions. Even you know those kids who went on spring break in Florida. Was that the brightest idea? No, but did they make that decision conscious that they were going to spread disease other places? Of course not. They were making a decision based on what they understood at the time to be a safe, appropriate decision. So assume best intentions and let's not disparage each other and let's support each other as as best we can.
0: Your guidance rings so true to me. And yet, as you're saying it, I'm thinking in my mind, how can you, based on what you went through, still feel that way? because so many people were so critical of you. Did they have best intentions? And also with somebody um, just, just suffering the symptoms of PTSD, oftentimes it does change their worldview. Like, okay, the world is a dangerous, scary, negative place. So how do you hold on to such sentiments of positivity? And it's a measured positivity. I don't think that it's at all positive a pie in the sky. I think we should all be able to do that to some degree. But just given your personal experience, how are you able to do
1: that? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I know that I had to really work hard to understand where the blame was coming from, and why I was blamed. And knowing now that it wasn't true, but that it, it helped me understand that why people react the way they do and have some compassion for that, which I do. I understand. It's, it, and I, my purpose of my book is to try to share the lessons that I learned to maybe open some eyes to not blame in the future when things happen out of our control that we're afraid of.
0: And I think that there were so many lessons that the book did teach us. And I, as I mentioned, I really enjoyed reading your book and reading about the untold story of 9-11 and the aftermath, and especially from your perspective. But starting with a couple of key lessons, now that you've come full circle and you're sort of on the, hopefully the downward slope of your PTSD symptoms and managing that, and of course, finally being able to understand that you weren't to blame, what would you have done differently, if anything?
1: Nothing. That's a it's kind of a peaceful thing to know that. There, you know, for for years I felt like I was failing at resilience and mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't feel stronger. I wasn't able to move on and slam the door on what happened. And I I really felt a lot of shame mm-hmm. in that. And I've now come to a place where I recognize that I I did well. <laughs> I did the best I could and I did well with it. And I I'm grateful. I I don't feel you know, shame anymore. And that was a big, a big thing to get past.
0: And you talked about having the resilience of sea glass. And I had this very clear image of that, you know, rough waters, rough ocean waters and waves. They basically attack the sea glass over and over again. And eventually it smooths them over. And I remember recently I went to Hawaii with my husband and we went to this beach that was known for just a ton of sea glass on the beach. And I remember just going through and, you know, thinking, well, is it safe for us to just walk in there, you know, because they're glass, you know, you could, you cut yourself. We're walking there barefoot, but no, right. Cause it's sea glass. It's all smoothed out. And they're beautiful. Um, and they had been there for, you know, God knows how long. And in this, this metaphor of, you know, adversity and adverse events, and even though they're painful and difficult that they don't have to determine the outcome of your life. And no matter how much the waters attack, the sea glass. It's still there. It's still a whole piece and it's a new, beautiful piece. It looks different from how it started. So I feel like that's a great metaphor for resilience. And I was wondering if we can talk about that because people sometimes think that resilience is maybe something you were born with. I know some people who believe that some people just have the good fortune of being more resilient than others. Speaking of blame, I think that it's interesting that sometimes I find people criticizing someone where they don't have resilience or doesn't look like they do based on their reactions to things like, well, why, why do they take it so seriously? Why can't they just be more resilient and get over it? So I think we throw this word around a lot, but I don't know if everybody knows how resilience really comes about and how we can work on it. So what are your thoughts about that?
1: So um, with all um, due respect to um, the song, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger, I hate that song with fiber <laughs> of my being because um, yes. I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a second. And, and I struggled so much with that cultural impetus that I had to be stronger because of what I went through. And I'm not stronger. I'm, I'm definitely wiser. Um, I've learned that resilience, I think, is carrying what happened, the painful parts of your story right beside the joyful parts mm-hmm. and living fully on that foundation is what resilience is to me.
0: And it's not about avoiding all negative emotions, because who can do that? We're all going to have negative emotions. And one of my favorite stories to talk about is actually the movie Inside Out, because even though it's sort of a children's movie, I feel like it has some really profound messages that children and adults can learn from, which is that there's no real pure joy or no pure sorrow that most of the most beautiful emotions that we have as human beings are complex, and they have dimensions of each. And you don't have to shut away the sides that are painful to be able to have meaningfulness and joy in your life. And I think increasing resilience definitely takes time and intentionality. You have to work on it. And it's not, again, a personality trait. I think resilience involves behaviors, thoughts, and actions that anyone can learn and develop. And There's a few core components of resilience that I think people can work on. I think social connection is definitely a big part of it and making meaning is another big part of it as well as having healthy, balanced thinking. So can you tell me a little bit about each of those things? So how do you work on social connection when so much is going on and when you're in the middle of your PTSD? How were you able to still work on that while you were going through it?
1: So you know, I found that being... Seen was a big part of of moving forward, sharing my story, being very authentic about it, and you know, trying not to just brush it off because that's kind of the more socially appropriate way to be. You know, I, I used to feel like I was the worst guest to have at a dinner party because I was so serious and so heavy with what <laughs> I was experiencing. They're like, oh here, here comes Jenny again! Oh no! <laughs> so, so being honest and authentic was how I connected to people and connected deeply. Like I've made since 9-11 so many deep close friends because of the, of the ability to really share a a, tr- a trueness.
0: Right. And I think, You're right. It's all about sharing your story despite some of the consequences because sometimes you would share your story, you get more critics, you know, Um, kind of the opposite reaction that you were hoping for. But as we've already established, you don't do it for the reaction. You don't do it for the external validation, even if, of course, those thoughts crossed your mind at that point. You do it for yourself. You do it so that you can process what happened to you and find words for describing the trauma, which ultimately ended that feeling of isolation, so I think that's a great tip is, you know, really prioritizing your relationships, being authentic and presenting your story and talking about it, because that is part of the processing of trauma and adversity. What about making meaning? You know, we, we throw this word around a lot. And right now, um, there's an advent of focusing on your values. <laughs> so we are such a goals-based world. We're all about goals. Let's do our bucket list. But if that bucket list has nothing to do with what you really care about deep down, people feel empty after they achieve a goal. Sort of like, wow, that was anticlimactic. So I think sometimes we talk about this proactive approach of working on meaning, where you really focus on what's important to you. And one of the things that you mentioned is of course your family holding you together. Like, okay, I'm here for my family, even in the depths of my struggles, even when I thought about killing myself, what kept me here was meaning-making through my family. But how do you... Deal with making meaning when you're at those levels of despair. So you had family, but was there anything else? And can we tell any of our listeners who maybe don't have children um, what how could they make meaning in those desperate times?
1: So when I found everything stripped away from who I was—the successful, good, hardworking person that I had tried so hard to be and was—when I found that gone, what I looked for is what was left in terms of. Deep, deep inside. And for me, it was my um capability of writing. and it's something else for other people. But I knew one thing about myself that still was true, which is I love to write, and I was a good writer. And for me, making meaning was to write this story. It took me a long time. It took me thirteen years to write this story. Um, but to to give it meaning both for myself, but to offer it in a way that might bring meaning to other people was ultimately, Uh, what brought me joy, (laughs) what brought me joy in this experience is to do something good.
0: Yeah. And I think to summarize, looking for those opportunities for self-discovery as somebody who is very much uh, built on a foundation of a self-concept, that's all about achieving wonderful outcomes and career goals. I mean, you were such a successful person, you still are. And it's easy for your self-concept to be hinged on that because you get a lot of rewards. And also you truly were passionate and loved your job. But I think you bring up such an important point that when you lose that part of yourself, and I think even right now in the COVID-19 pandemic, people are really struggling with it because people are losing their jobs or they don't know what the future holds for their career identity. And people are struggling with what it means to look at these other parts of themselves. Because most people's self-concept again to build a resilient self concept shouldn't be hinged on just one domain because then if that domain goes away then it really messes with you and i think a good example of this is professional athletes you know it's a rough transition to go from being an athlete full time to wow what am i going to do with the rest of my life now that i've had an injury or my contract is over and so for you it was writing but i think that that is the very encouraging message is don't be afraid to look at these other parts of yourself and build up those other parts of your self concept you know, who are you outside of your job? Or who are you outside of being a wife or husband? You know, build up these other areas of yourself, get to know yourself better and helping others. That's one of the biggest ways that we can make meaning is when you're feeling depressed, probably that's the last thing you want to do. But ironically, it is what's going to help you get out of it is to actually support someone else. And your writing's did and is still helping a lot of people. And I know that you've gotten comments. I loved your story. I'm so glad that you shared it. So did you feel that? Yes, that was part of my meaning making as well.
1: Very much. So I mean that to me, if one person reads my book and can get themselves out of bed and go back at it and, and keep trying, um, that would be everything. Yeah. Yeah. And the
0: last part of resilience building I want to focus on is embracing healthy thoughts and healthy living. Now, we talked about that when you were in the throes of your PTSD and when it was at its worst, you didn't take care of yourself. You know, sleep, eating, exercise went out the window, not riding with a seatbelt. Um, are you riding with a seatbelt now, Jenny? Yes, yeah.
1: Yes, Okay,
0: ma'am. <laughs> okay. good. Um, so how do people embrace healthy living, healthy thoughts when they are in a despairing moment. Because I think, you know, we talk a lot about positive psychology, positive thinking. I mean, in some ways, I almost feel like it's rammed down our throats a bit too much. (laughs) Sometimes you can't get into that mentality no matter how hard you try and there's nothing wrong with you. Um, and, And yet that's what people always talk about is, okay, well, just repeat a positive mantra to yourself. I mean, I keep getting that image in that Saturday Night Live skit where Will's looking in the mirror. He's like, I love myself. (laughs) Everybody likes me, you know, and obviously it's not going to be that way every day. And maybe positive mantras do work for some people, but I actually know a lot of people who really fight against that. So how did you reach a point of more balanced thinking? Let's talk about like balanced, more realistic thinking as opposed to negative thinking.
1: So I think partly just in... Um, pursuing a new career. I left the Boston Herald and went to the private sector and have been there for many years now. And just achieving, like still having that core ability and and being able to um, be successful was very helpful. Um, I've I've started acupuncture um, recently, which I find really, really helpful just to center myself and think about my body and in my, my health but I have to admit I have a ways to go <laughs> this is, this is, I, I don't I could, would never pretend to have figured this all out and you know have have achieved a, a healthy lifestyle my thoughts are in good shape now I have to uh, get going on on the rest of me.
0: Right. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because as somebody who is so career oriented and and maybe in your past focused on outcomes. And in fact, I remember in the book when you and Andrew were talking about this and maybe a year after the fact, she said, you have PTSD. And still in that moment, instead of wanting to like process through that experience, you're like, okay, well, how do I solve it? Like, let's. How do we clean this up, you know, get to the other side? Um, And I'm glad that you're embracing the process because I think self-development and wellness is a process. None of us are perfect or done ever, you know? Um, So like you said, we're all works in progress. We're still working on it. Um, You've identified through your own self-assessment the areas that maybe you need a little bit more work versus less. But I do think that a key part of what you're saying and, and what I took from your book is a message of hope. And I think hope is such an important part of resilience because I think when we start to feel hopeless, like nothing will ever change, like only horrible things are ahead, that's when the despair comes in. That's when the suicidal ideation comes in. But holding on to at least the idea of hope, even if you can't make contact with it all the time, I think that's really important. How were you able to still find hope through all of this?
1: So very early on in the year, right after 9-11, I wrote down at a memorial service that I wanted to make meaning and find joy for Jack and Maddie, my children, and Marianne McFarland, the woman who died on the plane. It took me many years at a different memorial to write the same thing and add myself. So make meaning and find joy for Jack and Maddie and Marianne and me. And so I think acknowledging that I deserved to have a life of of joy, um, in meaning took a long time, but once I got there, then the rest kind of follows you because you have to then make that real. (laughs) It's not just words on a paper. You have to make it real.
0: Yeah. And I think the really wonderful point to take from all of that is you start with having hope for other people and then. Hopefully, graduating to having hope for yourself. And one of my favorite mindfulness activities is a meditation called loving kindness. Have you heard of that one, Ginny? No. Loving kindness meditation is really cool because basically it has three parts. The first part is you wishing somebody you love well. You know, I wish you well. I wish you happiness and I wish that you're healthy. I wish good things happen to you. That's the first part of the meditation. Then it progressively gets harder because then the second part of the meditation is wishing an enemy well. So wishing somebody that you might be in conflict well, uh, well, somebody that you don't really like well. And, and I think that people sometimes struggle with because these are people who have hurt them and yet they are basically praying for them, meditating it and wishing them good thoughts. But the last part, which is always hardest for people who have been through trauma or attacks on their self-esteem and self-concept is that the last part of the meditation is wishing that wellness on yourself. And oftentimes when I do this exercise with my patients, they cry at this part and they say, I don't deserve it. I don't, I can't do this. You know, they'll literally snap out of the activity. And so I think what you're saying lines up with the experience of a lot of people who struggle, whether it's through trauma or low self-esteem, that they don't believe they deserve it. And you still have to find a way to believe that you do, that you be- believe in yourself, you believe in good things, and you have hope for yourself.
1: And I think being patient with how long that might take you is an is okay thing. It took me a very, very long time. And do I have regrets about that? Yes, but I can't change it. So I accept it. Yeah. It took me what it took me to get where I am.
0: There is no precise timeline for people who love to check things off a list or make goals for themselves. How long did it take you?
1: Well, it's still taking me, I guess I would say. And that's something <laughs> that I've learned. This is a, a lifelong process. It's going to yes. be with me. It's you know I'm in a good place and I'm very um, grateful for my family and my career and my friends and all those things, but it, I still carried the pain with me and I always will. And I, I know that's okay now. I know it's okay. It's part of life is to carry pain and joy.
0: Yes. And I loved hearing about your interactions with your therapist, Andrea. And I think uh, a note that I I liked that she made was the 9 aftermath and everything that happened with it. It's going to be part of your tapestry forever, but that As time goes on, it just won't be as bright of a part of your tapestry. And I think that's a good message for everyone because sometimes people think that their work is done or, okay, I've gone to therapy all these years and I've worked through it. So I should be done, right? I don't think you're ever done. It's just part of who you are and part of your experience and you learn from it. And when it comes back up, when those feelings and symptoms come back up, hopefully you've developed enough resilience and coping strategies to work through it.
1: Yeah, and and offer help to others who are struggling. and And now, with with what's happening in our country, I, I, I feel I can you know my friends and family, I can reach out and and help them because, you know, I've been there,
0: yes. And that's the silver lining of all of this is that because you have suffered through such immeasurable pain in so many ways, you can turn that around and be able to assist other people in their time of pain and in their time of hopelessness to try to give them hope and to let them know, hey, there is a better tomorrow. It will happen. And give yourself a break, right? Just give yourself a little bit of a break. I'm so excited for people to discover your book, Jenny, And I had such a wonderful time talking to you today. Can you tell people when your book is being released and where they can find you?
1: Sure thing. Um, on my watch, a memoir is being released April 14th, 2020. So just in a, in a little bit. Um, and that you can find it on amazon.com or, or on my website, virginiabuckingham.com.
0: Great. And I think this book right now is so timely given everything that we're going through, but also I think it's an evergreen book. And I was struck by how quickly I was taken back to 9-11, even just in the first chapters of reading your book. And again, this is an experience that has changed America forever. And right now we're in the middle of another experience that's going to change America and the world forever. And I hope that we can all be a little bit more compassionate and a little bit more kind to other people and ourselves. And to remember that scapegoating is not a solution. That's not the end of a journey and that we need to challenge ourselves to find a better way to solve problems together. Jenny, again, thank you so much. I hope that we can keep in touch and best of luck with your book. I will follow you and keep posted on what you're doing. And for everybody, thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, check me out on social at Dr. Judy Ho. And be sure to subscribe, download, listen, and tell your friends about this podcast. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.